to a tour through the ancient world. Bethany Hughes is a British historian, author and broadcaster who specialises in classical antiquity. She's written and presented over 50 TV and radio documentaries and received awards for her effort in documenting and promoting this period in history. Her books include Helen of Troy, Goddess, Princess, Whore, The Hemlock Cup, Venus and Aphrodite, Istanbul, A Tale of Three Cities. But her latest is The Seven Wonders of the Ancient World. Bethany travelled to all but one of the sites of the original Seven Wonders, which are, of course, the Great Pyramid of Giza, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, the Temple of Artemis, the Statue of Zeus at Olympia, the Mausoleum of Halicarnassus, and the Colossus at Rhodes, as well as the Lighthouse of Alexandria. Wonderful interview we had on that amazing city of Alexandria not too long ago. What do we know about when they were built? The powerful ideas and forces behind them. Bethany Hughes is with us now from London. Thank you. It must be getting on there. Thanks for being up with us. Welcome. No problem. Lovely, lovely to have a chat to you. Why were the wonders the focus of your latest project? Well, I think it's one of those things that everybody's heard of them, Seven Wonders, but nobody really knows whether they're real or not. I think if you say that, the Seven Wonders of the Ancient World, we somehow imagine this kind of fantasy myth, legend, and these extraordinary places dotted over the earth. But actually, as you say, they were seven real places dotted around the Mediterranean, with the exceptions of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, which moves a bit further east into uh, Mesopotamia in the Middle East. But they were extraordinary buildings, the most ambitious projects. They were examples of size does matter in terms of being remembered as one of the seven wonders. And I just wanted to get to the bottom of their story, share some of the incredible new archaeological evidence there is for them. And also, exactly as you said, try to go to travel to them all as the ancients did, because this wasn't just a list. It was a it was a bucket list. It was, you know, seven things that you should see before you die. So so I did them on foot and by sea. It is a challenge of the time in which you work and that mythology meeting actual history is a fine line. This is true even in the, in the story of Alexander the Great and the founding of Alexandria, which we, uh, which we discussed recently with, a, with another um, academic. As you say, this was not a case of, of mythology. This was a case of the real deal. And, and, when, uh, and when do we know about the designation of these as, if you like, the, the seven original wonders because we have all sorts of modern day wonders but how and when did this become the original list well you're absolutely right there was a list and it was the first list that has survived there could potentially be earlier lists but the first one that we have evidence of was written down around 2200 years ago in Egypt, on papyrus, and it's only survived because that bit of papyrus was then used to mummify a body. So this mummified remain from central Egypt was discovered, the, the cartonnage, it's called, the kind of papyri around it, was unwrapped. And lo and behold, it turned out to have the original Seven Wonders of the Ancient World list on it. Um, and, and something I kind of love about that uh, particular bit of evidence is that it has the Seven Wonders of the Ancient World 
actually it doesn't have all of them because it's a bit scrappy because it was used, you know, to mummify a remain. But it's also a list of the seven best of everything that mattered in the ancient world. So it's like the seven best mountains, the seven best rivers, the seven finest artists. So this was an age obsessed with list making. And basically these seven wonders were probably the kind of biggest and most impressive human made constructions that existed at that time. There was the seven hells, the seven celestial bodies and the seven sages of Greece. What was it with seven? Yeah, interesting, isn't it? The number seven. So when you put something into a list of seven, it does, doesn't it, seem to have this sort of semi-magical impact. It's sort of symbolic. It feels somehow meant and, you know, that it's got this almost supernatural power. Um, And seven is a special number mathematically. If there are any mathematicians listening, you know, you'll know it's indivisible. It's all of these, you know, it's all of these things that it's it has a kind of potency as simply as a number. But in the ancient world, what they also thought was it combined the seven elements of Earth, so earth, air, wind and fire, and the seven celestial bodies. So the sun, the moon, uh, sorry, the three celestial bodies, the sun, the moon and the stars. So add three and four and you get seven. So it was almost this notion that, you know, everything that mattered was in the number seven. Um, But they weren't, you know, as I said at the beginning, you know, they weren't actually scattered across the Earth. These were the seven biggest things that were made in that Hellenistic world, so in the empire post-Alexander the Great. So they were kind of seven that people who lived in Alexandria, for instance, would have known about, talked about, had the chance to actually physically go and visit. There are some wonderful characters, as always. Wonderful might be a word we use now. Uh, (laughs) Those that were busy colonising at the rate of knots might have had a different view. Um, Yeah. So... But but really, really strong characters and stories in here, and I'll get you to touch on some of them. But we are back in that time, and if there was the ultimate coloniser, it was Alexander the Great. Uh, this huge ambition, uh, this this huge, um, you know, I, I'm trying to think of a word to describe the scope of his ambition, but also what he was able to pursue. Can you pick up, please? Yeah, well, he's just what's a word that's often used about his pothos, the Greek yes. pothos, which means a yearning. You know, it's a kind of yearning for more. This almost kind of addictive yearning to to go, to go more, to do more, to see more, as you say, to conquer more lands. And you know, what I love about the Seven Wonders list is that you know there is absolutely no doubt that each and every one of them has an underbelly. So they would have been built on the backs of the. Uh, enslaved, the oppressed, those who'd been press ganged into labour. We mustn't ever forget that. And, you know, the cover of my book has a picture of the pyramid on it. And there's a kind of shadowy reflection underneath to remind us of how these things get raised. But, but they weren't all built by the same uh, superpower. They weren't all built with the same ambition. And some of them, for instance, the pyramids, it looks like they were actually built as part of a kind of huge national project on behalf of Egypt, where people built them because they genuinely thought with the, with the pyramids particular, uh, particularly, and can we just say, you know, we mustn't forget the Great Pyramid is 4,600 years old. It's so old. And yet it's still the only of the seven wonders which is surviving pretty much intact. 
that these things were built for particular reasons. So the Great Pyramid was built because the idea was that the great King Khufu would ascend to heavens and once he ascended, that would keep the world turning. Some of the kind of slightly lesser known wonders like the Temple of Artemis at Ephesus, really interestingly, were built absolutely in honour of this extraordinary goddess, this feisty goddess um, with ferocious power who protected virgins and hunters and the hunted and gave sanctuary to people. So the Temple of Artemis was a real place that had these dormitories all around it where refugees could sleep. So, you know, they they served a particular purpose in their time. And, of course, they were extraordinary demonstrations of ambition and might and status and standing and all of those things but not all of them were just reserved for the elite so uh ordinary people could access uh, a number of these wonders so so they have you know they they have a very interesting multifaceted history and story to them let's stay with the great pyramid of giza interestingly what's the literal meaning of the word pyramid i always presumed it was somehow related to its shape uh, or, or some other kind of geographical or mathematical um, concept, but it's it's not the meaning at all. Yeah, although weirdly it kind of is its shape. So pyramus is actually a Greek word, and it means like a bun or a, a bun. cake. Yes. <laughs> It's, it's like slightly less grand, graphic. though, isn't it? <laughs> it is definitely slightly less grand. You know, the brioche of Giza doesn't sound the same, does it? Exactly. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. And you're absolutely right. You know, that was a, a name given to it much later by the Greeks, and yet we call it the pyramid. Probably the ancient Egyptians called it a a mer, you know, it transliterates as M-A-R, a place of ascension. So for them, this was Khufu's horizon and the pyramid was the place where this their great leader could ascend to the skies. So place of ascension is definitely much more romantic than, you know, than than a giant cake. Have we solved the mystery about how it was constructed or not? Well, we're definitely getting closer. Um, the incredible work by Mark Lerner and his the team on, on the Giza Plateau is showing that actually not only was the River Nile much, much, much closer to the pyramids than we thought. So, you know, for most of the year, you'd have seen during the inundation, you'd have seen the pyramids. So during the floods, you'd have seen the pyramids reflected in the in the waters of the Nile. But because that the river itself was closer and because the flooding was much more extreme than it is now, so often rising like seven metres, you know, imagine that, that's a huge rise in water level, that it looks as though actually that energy, that hydraulic energy was being used by the builders of the pyramid to help to lift some of those 2.3 million limestone blocks into place. Who was the driving force? Behind the pyramid. Mm. Do we know in this I'm instance? Sure. Yeah, well, I'm sure it it was Khufu. I'm sure it was the, the great king. They're, they're not called pharaohs yet this far back in time, but the great king Khufu. Um, but what's really fascinating is, and it was, you know, why it felt like it was the time to write this book, because there's all this incredible new evidence to share. It, there are these brilliant digs on the Red Sea, and they're revealing thousands papyri fragments and on those fragments are written in minute detail how the pyramid was built and we know one of the people who who was involved in the building was this man called Mera and there are 40 sailors and workers who work for him and we hear about them we hear what the team's name was we hear about the competition between the teams um so so we're slowly slowly jigsaw puzzling together and of course it was 
the king who uh, instructed the pyramid to be built. But we're we're beginning to meet some of the other characters who are actually physically responsible for its creation. And these archaeological digs, they are continuing. I think they were interrupted, many of them, uh, by uh, the, the pandemic, of course. But they are ongoing and more information is constantly coming at a... A, a pace that requires patience, but in the context of history at a fast pace. Absolutely. I mean, when I was researching the book, another of the of the wonders is the mausoleum of Halicarnassus, the, the huge tomb that gives us the word mausoleum that's used around the world, the, the, the tomb, the resting place of the great Carian leader, Mausolus, King Mausolus. And when I was researching that, I suddenly got a call saying, we found another tomb built by Moses. Would you like to go and have a look at it? So I was like, yes, of course. So I managed to clamber down and look at this extraordinary, again, 2,300-year-old tomb, completely as fresh as it as if it had been made yesterday, and almost certainly by the same artists who would have been used to sculpt and carve the mausoleum of Halicarnassus. So it is the wonderful thing about history and archaeology is you never say never, you know, unless something's been destroyed it's there it's waiting to be found so as i said we're sort of jigsaw puzzling together these new bits of evidence so we can really meet meet the seven wonders face to face they have met their test uh, from mother nature many of them over time no matter how glorious they were at the time uh let's come back to alexandria again and is it the pharos or pharos lighthouse please this was this got dealt to by an earthquake as far back as 1303 BC or, or, or BCE. Um, was this the story for, for many? Did nature take to them and other occasions did, did humanity take to them? Yeah, well, the, the the lighthouse was actually, interestingly, one of the last to survive. So in fact, it's 1303 CE or AD. Oh, forgive so, me. And it, mm. No worries, because what's interesting is that it was felled by the same earthquake that shook a lot of the decorative stone off the Great Pyramid. So, you know, there, this is a very geoseismic region. Um, it's somewhere where terrible suffering was brought about by the, the movement of the earth. And you're right. So the lighthouse kind of survived. And then this this earthquake pretty much did for it. The Temple of Artemis in Ephesus was um, collapsed by earthquakes a number of times. The statue of Zeus in Olympia, the, the giant statue of the king of the gods that overlooked the original Olympic Games, was burnt to the ground after it had been taken to the city of Constantinople, what's now modern-day Istanbul. So uh, they, they have all been, you know, earth, air, wind and fire, as well as the hand of humans destroyed them. The poor old Temple of Artemis was burnt down by an arsonist, an ancient arsonist, who basically burnt it down purely to be famous, you know, I love the, you know, it's a great thing about being a historian is that you see all these modern ills that we say, oh, you know, fame and courting celebrity. That's a, that's a kind of malaise of the of the 21st century. But there was this guy, it said 2,300 years ago, who burnt down one of the seven wonders of the world simply in order to be famous so that we'd still be talking about him today, which we are. So it worked. We've always been stupid, haven't we? Uh, and <laughs> regrettably may continue that way. Uh, some of us yeah. sometimes, anyway. <laughs> Let's talk about the, the, the um, Statue of Zeus at Olympia. It's the only wonder that's on mainland Greece. A bit of a pilgrimage retired to get there. And this was one that only Greeks were allowed to take. Um, they were obsessed, weren't they? You, you mentioned the Olympics. It still does my head in just how old 
um, this is and the obsession with the human body and the perfection of the human body. Uh, but what was the story behind the statue itself? So this statue, exactly as you said, it was built in the Temple of Zeus, uh, the Sanctuary of Zeus, where the Olympic Games took place, we're told, from the 8th century BC onwards. The Statue of Zeus was enormous again, 40 over 40 foot high, seated. So you can just imagine this kind of inherent energy in it, this idea that if, if the Statue of Zeus stood up, it would unroof the temple. And so luscious, so decorated with a ton of hippopotamus ivory and a ton of gold and these crystal flowers. So it was, a, you know, it was a, it would have been gobsmacking. And they, they had a real sense of fear to the Greeks. So you had this incredible statue and it was sitting above a pool of olive oil. So it would have been reflected in the olive oil. So it would have looked double height, you know. So it was an, it was a, an amazing creation, this beautiful probably built by the same man who did the statue of the goddess Athena in the Parthenon in Athens up on the Acropolis. And uh, it sort of incarnated macho might and competition and and power. It was quite an unforgiving. People talked about it glowering, you know, as if as if it was frowning with thunder. So, you know, as if that's what's been so brilliant about about writing this book and researching it is not just it's not just the what and the how, but the why. You know, why were these things built when they when they were? What did they mean to the people who saw them? And and you know, what do they mean to us today? But also just insights into humanity of the time as well. And I mentioned that obsession uh, obsession of the of the ancient Greeks with uh, with the human body. Um, one of the facts in the book is that many aristocrats spent eight hours a day at the gym as doctors prescribed exercise as a cure for mental and physical health challenges. Again, um, we can see the parallels with our contemporary societies, and maybe that's something to do with the arc of a society, uh, where there is wealth and time and leisure time um, for some anyway. We see this kind of um, self-obsession or personal obsession. Yeah, well, you sh- and we should never forget that. So we talk about classical Greece with these slightly sort of rose-tinted spectacles. You know, this was a slave in con- economy. It only functioned because it was um, based on those who'd been taken and deprived of their freedom and liberty. And, you know, slightly later, we hear the great philosopher Aristotle describing slaves as man-footed things, you know, so that it- exactly that, you know, it was a, it was okay for the haves, appalling for the have-nots. Have but um, that obsession with physical fitness, it was almost like a religious a- a- obsession. The idea was that you got yourself looking fit and beautiful so that the gods would love you. And, you know, again, it's so interesting, isn't it? As you were saying, you know, this our obsession with things that we think of as being very modern is very ancient. So, again, there were these celebrities of the Olympic Games and... They used to sell so that you would you would exercise for the Olympics. You'd rub yourself with olive oil. The olive oil would be scraped off and then kept in these little bottles. And people would buy these bottles called like gloios. You know, it was almost like it had the sort of special magic powers of these super athletes contained in the oil. So, you know, that's exactly like people buying, you know, sweatbands from a from a, a a tennis player or you know i don't know i, I, I wasn't quite going to say the pants of an athlete but you know it's a very similar <laughs> it's a very similar idea so you know we're nothing starting to changes. get very Gwyneth Paltrow now aren't we uh, but but again yeah. the division between those who lived in that luxury and those on whom uh that luxury was based interestingly we were talking about the arsonist um 
of the Temple of Artemis at Ephesus. And, and the theory, one of the, theory, the theories is that he was a desperate slave and that this was a protest, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly, that he just couldn't be heard and, and he thought he'd make the most extraordinary, unforgettable act of civil disobedience, you know, in order to be heard. And it's it's not it's not impossible. It's really not impossible. And, you know, you get these... That's why I just love history is that people sometimes say, oh, you know, why do you do it? And it's because you're living in in with the, with these extraordinary characters. You know, you're meeting new people every day and, and feeling empathetic towards them and their lives and what they achieved and didn't, achieve, you know, their hopes and dashed dreams. So, yes, that's right. So we think he could have been a disgruntled slave. Um, in Olympia itself, there's a there's a guy who comes and he's obviously got mental health issues, you know, and eventually he throws himself on a on a pyre. So so these, you know, it, it really encourages you when you think about these wonders as real places visited by real people. It really encourages you to think about the kind the 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 you know, the specifics of the ancient world. And as I said, the kind of humans, women and men as individuals, not just a, a mass of people from antiquity. Well, I'm still stopped. I'm sorry on Aristotle's quote there. What was it? What is it? The slaves are what? Footed people, did you say? Yeah, yeah. Man-footed things. Man-footed people. Man, man-footed what? Things. Man-footed oh my things. Lord. I know, it's extraordinary, isn't it? So, yeah, you know, you have to, again, you have to understand that that's what, that is, that was a, a world view at the time. You went to all of the sites, as we said, uh, as we said, few standing, um, only one remains of the original seven, but you went to all of the sites except the hanging gardens, a bit too difficult to get to. Tell us more yeah. about what we know about them. Yeah. Yeah, so they were in would have been in Iraq, what's modern day Iraq. Um, we don't know whether they were in Babylon or a hundred miles to the north in the city of Nineveh, you know, the famous biblical city of Sin, very close to modern day Mosul. Um, and it's funny, isn't it? Because they're the only ones for which we don't have any absolute surefire, hard and fast evidence for where they were and what they looked like. But they're probably the most famous. You know, if you say to people, oh, what were the seven wonders of the world? Hanging Gardens of pa Babylon probably be the first thing that people say. And I think that's partly because we don't know exactly what they look like. So we can kind of inhabit them with our imaginations. But whatever the specifics, they would have been extraordinary. So these sort of mountain-like steeped gardens with this really sophisticated watering system probably using imported plants and trees taken by either the great king Nebuchadnezzar the Great or Sennacherib on again on military campaigns so this sort of artificial creation of of paradise what of um what of your conclusion really as you say you go back and you walk in these worlds uh, very intensively on a project of this scale and you know you, you come away a little bit changed by it it's ongoing as you say because more research is telling more but but you've kind of walked as closely as you can in these shoes and these societies and when you finally you've got the publishing done and you can sit down and have a cup of tea we, we, what does it leave you thinking about this famous era of ambition and and achievement of a sort yeah, and I think that's right. You know, as I said, you know, you've got to be critical of these places and, and how they were built and who built them. So you mustn't be romantic about them. 
But there is also something we we crave wonder as a species. That's something I I absolutely see as a historian. In good times and bad, we want to be awed by things. We want to kind of feel that we're capable of of things beyond the the capacities of the individual. You know that if we collaborate together, we can build extraordinary structures. We can share extraordinary dreams. You know, and I think there is something in this unwonderful age that we're we're living in when so much is being destroyed it reminds us that we can privilege beauty and aspiration and inspiration and collaboration and that we can create as well as destroy forgive me for bringing this up probably everyone does when they interview you um but when you go out there and you go in there um you can spend a lot of time in tombs, a lot of time in, in, in places. And you've, you've had one incident, I think, in Turkey that was alarming. Um, could you spend, Can you just explain a little bit more about what happened in Cappadocia? <laughs> yeah, well, it's very ironic, isn't it? So, you know, I'm a historian of the ancient world, which inevitably means I spent a lot of time underground in tombs. The only thing I'm scared of in life, pretty much, is small dark spaces. So, you know, it's nuts that I do what I do. And I go into these things and I just start to panic. And that probably started when I was in Cappadocia, exactly said in Turkey. And uh, this is years ago, this is like 30 years ago. Um, and I got separated from the people I was with. And suddenly I was in these pitch black underground cities with no light. This is pre-mobile phones. You know, you'll remember that probably when you didn't have an, an automatic light with you completely lost with just the tunnels getting smaller and smaller and uh it was beginning to be hard to breathe and then eventually somebody came and rescued me so sadly i kind of now looking back on it i think that experience is probably the thing that's given me a fear of small dark spaces well, so you know it's a completely <laughs> logical fear and scuba divers yeah. and others who found themselves alone in a dark place where they don't want to be and worried about breathing would yeah. would certainly um would certainly understand Bethany, yeah. uh, thank you. Another wonderful work, another wonderful tour uh, through uh, the ancient world. Thank you so much, Bethany Hughes. The Seven Wonders of the Ancient World is her latest work.